You're listening to History Out Loud, Chat from the Stacks, a podcast by Coldsdale Libraries, with Jill Carpenter and me, Sarah Rose. We're very happy to have Paul Weatherhead joining us today. Um, thanks for joining us, Paul. Hello, great to be here. I think to begin with, uh, a few Paul Weatherhead facts are in order. So he grew up in Hebden Bridge, Calderdale, but has since travelled teaching English abroad in Greece and Russia. And he now teaches research and academic skills to international students in Manchester. He's also a musician playing electric mandolin in cult folk rock band, The Ukrainians, and a songwriter for which he takes 60s psychedelia, 80s video nasties, and the Hebden Bridge Times as his inspiration. He's also the author of local bestseller, Weird Calderdale, Strange and Horrible Local History, first published in 2003, but Paul has recently returned to the subject and now has a new expanded edition that's already on the shelves <laughs> and flying off the shelves. <laughs> so, um, Paul, uh, what, what brought you full circle back to Weird Calderdale? Funnily enough, um, the, the, I, I've been planning a rewrite for some time, but I think the thing that gave me the momentum to do it was um, Weird Calderdale was starting to be cited and, and mentioned in, in a few other works. And one of the main ones was a, a novel by Ben Myers called These Darkening Days, which deals with the Halifax slasher, but sets it in modern day Hebden Bridge. And so that sort of credited Weird Calderdale in, in its ref, reference section at the back. So that was one thing that really sort of got me starting to think about it again and, and looking at how I can update it. Uh, and also just I'd sort of come across, started to come across loads more weird stories that I'd missed in in previous, in you know, in the previous edition. Right. Did you find lockdown a good time to be working on on it? Yes. Um, I was at home a lot more, and the gigs that I was doing, which would often take up a lot of my spare time, had all, were all cancelled. So, and it was something I did pretty obsessively for. Um, for the last 18 months, really, to two years, focusing on uh, on the research and the writing of it. Mm. So in other words, it's a lockdown. Uh, it was a strange time. So it's, you know, good for writing a strange book, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. May you live in interesting times, as they say. Mm. Um, so one of the chapters in the book is called The Halifax Slasher, Razorblade Terror. When, where did you first hear about this? Um, I first heard about it in an article in the Fortean Times, the Journal of Strange Phenomenon, that was actually about the Mad Gasser of Mattoon, uh, which was a, a scare that happened in America, I guess it was early 20th century, that involved uh, strange gas attacks. So that it, it was just mentioned in a sidebar there, a very small sidebar. So that that's what sort of got me interested in it and that's when I went to the Central Library and got out, got to the uh, the newspapers from 1938 and, and looked it up. Got on the microfilm readers. Yes yeah <laughs> and, and and you know it's I suppose the, the great thing about that is more or less the whole story plays out over just a few months so um, so it, and it was there a perfect story so that 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 was 
one of the things that set me off. I, I suppose the other things about Todd and UFOs and the witch in the 80s who tried to buy Slack Chapel and had, had been prevented by Cliff Richard and turned into a lion and, and all that crazy stuff. I remember that from growing up. So I guess that was another thing that that, that was always in my mind that, that I was going to include those chapters. But, well, you know, when I came across the Halifax Slasher, I thought that's got to be the lead chapter. Yeah. So if we go if we go back to the time, it's November 1938. Um, how, how did it all start? Well, we'll start with Mary Sutcliffe. Um, she was what was called a toffee girl. She worked in uh, Roundtree Macintosh's factory. She was walking home one night, um, 21st of November, along Lister Lane when suddenly a man jumped out in front of her. Um, he had his arm raised and she raised her arm to protect herself and received a, a, a large gash on her, her arm, uh, you know, and she ran home and, and, and told her family what had happened to her. She described this this attacker as being about 25 to 35, uh, as having uh, prominent eyes, a trilby hat and a, and a long raincoat. And that sort of set set the scene that gave us the image of the Halifax slasher. And that's that's where the first real slashing started. It was mentioned in the media at the time, wasn't it, as, as a mm. slashing incident? It was a slashing incident and um, nothing else. Ha- I mean, there was a lot of shock uh, about it, but it, you know, it was a few days later before the second attack came. And that, that was um, a guy called Clayton Aspinall. A very similar thing happened to him. Someone who he didn't know jumped out, attacked him with a razor blade, and he sort of added the, the additional detail that maybe the, the attacker had ginger hair. But by this time, it was starting to appear in, in the national press. And, uh, you know, the headline in the Daily Mirror at that time was 200 girls locked from slasher uh, because the, the attack happened outside an art school and there happened to be some female students in there. But so it's it's suddenly gone from just in the local press into the into the national press. So there was certainly national attention given to the slasher at this time. And, and the attacks continued to escalate after that, didn't they? Uh, who, who else was unlucky enough to <laughs> counter well, the slasher? The, well, the following night after the Clayton Aspinall attack, um, in the book I've called it the night of the slasher because there were four attacks in one night. So it was really going crazy by this time. Um, I mean, I won't go through all of them, but one of the, uh, the victims of that, that night was Annie Cannon. Um, she was also um, a so-called toffee girl who worked with Mary Sutcliffe and she'd expressed the, 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 the fear that the slasher might come and get her, and he did. And I think another key victim of that night was Percy Waddington. Now, he was um, the manager of the Ellen Co-op and he'd been to the pub after finishing work. He was coming home with some fish and chips when he said a, a Macintoshed arm came round a corner and attacked him with a razor blade. Percy, though, managed to grab the attacker's raincoat and to pull a bit off his, pull the tab off the coat. So that meant now the police had their first clue, the first physical clue. Um, and, and the slasher's raincoat was, was very central to, to, to how we saw him. I mean, one thing I suppose to remember is that this November was the wettest November on record in, in Halifax. So it was a very miserable, foggy, damp time. So I think that all added to the sort of very gloomy, gothic atmosphere. Mm. 
So um, Percy, he ended up hammering on somebody's door, didn't he, to be left mm. in. And not only did he have the tab on the raincoat, he still had his chippy tea with him. <laughs> don't drop your chips, yes. Yeah, don't drop your chips. <laughs> yeah. So it's fair to say fear spread pretty rapidly after that. Yeah, it, it did. I mean, it was reported in the local press and the national press. And the, the fear really took off. I mean, walking sticks sold out at local shops. Uh, people called them slasher sticks. They were buying walking sticks, uh, you know, to defend themselves from the slasher. Um, girls were carrying pepper spray and hat pins to defend themselves. Uh, people were, were carrying all sorts. Workmen were carrying lead pipes with them. Um, people were walking in the middle of the street to avoid anyone attacking them. I mean, there'd probably been six or seven, maybe a few more attacks by this time. So it was really taking off. There, there were a couple of times when innocent people were nearly lynched by mobs roaming the street looking for, for the attacker, but large numbers of volunteers were roaming the streets. Events were cancelled. Um, dance halls and cinemas were losing money. People were afraid to go out because of these strange, seemingly random attacks that were going on. One of those wrongly set upon was uh, Fred Baldwin. He was only 15. He was only 15. He was pushing his bike home one night when a group of men set upon him. Um, maybe the men were drunk. Who knows what might have happened to poor old Fred. Um, a, a woman who knew him managed to stop the attack and he just about escaped. I, th I think the other guy who was attacked was called Clifford George Edwards. Uh, he was pretty badly mauled by, by the crowd as well. So it, there was a danger if you were wearing a fawn overcoat, a raincoat, as almost everyone was at that time, you were in danger of becoming attacked as, be, you know, as being mistaken for the slasher. Well, Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> yeah, Humphrey Bogart. I mean, if you think of um, the Graham Greene novel, Brighton Rock, that, that's the sort of image of these, what they called race gangs, you know, the racehorse gangsters with their overcoats and their, you know, peaky blinders type caps and so on. So that, that, that was the fear that people had. Mm. So not long after that, I think Halifax police decided it was all getting a bit out of control and they, they called in Scotland Yard, didn't they? Chief Inspector William Salisbury and Detective Sergeant Studdard. So, so what was their take on it? Yeah, that's... It's strange because it must have been quite hard for Halifax police to to admit defeat, but they'd clearly lost control uh, of the situation. No one was safe. The attacks were continuing. I mean, at one point, the newspapers were speculating that maybe there were two or possibly three slashers at work. So, so it's, it's hard to imagine the fear now, but it, anxiety was at a fever pitch. And also one thing that we didn't mention, of course, is that attacks started taking place in other towns and cities around the country, in Blackburn and uh, in Glasgow, in Manchester. So clearly Halifax police had, had lost control and they got in the two Scotland Yard men. I think the first, well, the first thing that uh, Salisbury did was set about re-interviewing the victims, going through all the documents, going through all the reports. Yeah. It's it's odd, really, that even though he, he made all these attacks, no nobody was able to catch him. He, he seemed to be pretty fleet of foot. Yeah, 
the, the conclusions that, that people were drawing from in both the press and the police were first that he was probably a local man because he could attack someone and then disappear down the, the ginnels and alleys very quickly. So he, he obviously had local knowledge. And that also made people quite anxious because that means this mystery attacker could be your brother, your husband, your work colleague, it could be anyone. So that was the first thing. As, as you said, he was very fleet of foot. I think after one of the attacks, an amateur football team chased him but, but couldn't catch him. There's a suggestion that his strength uh, and speed were verging on the supernatural. There's one report of him sort of <laughs> jumping over the roofs of a, of a, a factory in Sorby Bridge. So, yeah, he, he was becoming a bogeyman. Uh, that, 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 that's for sure. It's quite interesting, like when you look at the victims, they're like a really wide range as well, aren't they? I was quite surprised that there were men as well. I think when I'd read it, I'd initially assumed that it would all be like young women or something that were being attacked. Mm. But that, that is strange. I mean, that they were mostly women. They were mostly working class women. There were a, a couple of men and the, certainly the, the, there were late teens up to the you know, 40s and 50s. Mm. Um, yeah. And I mean, it, we've also got the, the question of, where did the attacks start? Because there was a, there were two other attacks before the Mary Sutcliffe attacks, the, the one that we usually call the first slashing, uh, and that was on Gertrude Watts and Mary Gledhill. Sometimes they called the Barkisland girls, and that was um, a week or so before Mary Sutcliffe was attacked. And it's not clear whether that was an attack by the same person or not, because first there were two of them and all the other attacks were on individuals. And also, it's not clear whether they were attacked with a blade or a mallet. So eventually, the the raincoat is re recovered. Is it Ellen? Was it the rugby ground? Yes, that's right. Yes, they found the raincoat. It had the missing tab that matched the one that Percy had ripped from his attacker. And there was, I think it was a receipt from some repair work that they found. And so from that, they could trace who owned the raincoat. And that's when the whole thing started to collapse because when the raincoat's owner was traced, it turned out to be Percy Waddington himself. And when the police confronted him with this, he cracked immediately and said his nerves had got the better of him. Uh, he slashed himself. He didn't know why he did it. He took a razor, cut himself, and, that, and that's where, and that's where the whole case started to unravel. And and after that, the uh, confessions came in thick and fast. That's right. Yes, Salisbury and Studdard re-interviewed many of the victims, and many of them, not all of them, but most of them, confessed. And you know the the reasons that they gave for for fabricating these attacks were. Um, some of them said that it was their nerves. Some of them said they were excitable. I think the, the best excuse that, uh, that was given for cutting themselves and blaming it on the slasher was that of Leslie Nickel, who said that he thought if he reported a fake slashing, then the real slasher would come after him. He would capture the slasher and gain the reward. Um, a couple of, of others were, you know, sort of young women who'd had a, an argument with their boyfriend and wanted to get back at him. There was a couple that followed those lines. Uh, and, and like we said, a couple of the other 
you know, victims blame their nerves or, 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 or their mental health. Mm. And after that, there were trials, weren't they, for these people? Yes, indeed. Yes. So although the, the slasher scare ended towards the end of 1938, the trials went through the early part of 1939. So it was still in, in, in people's consciousness. No doubt it was still very embarrassing for the Halifax police to still have this stuff uh, in the newspapers. But yes, the, over the next few months, many of the victims were prosecuted um, and some of them received jail sentences, some of them received fines, and some of them seemed to just get off scot-free. And it's it's not clear at all why some were prosecuted, some had jail sentences, some got a fine and, and some just weren't prosecuted at all. Yeah, that's strange, isn't it? It's inconsistent. I wonder if the people who went to trial were the ones who confessed easily. Um, th there is some suggestion that they use some undue pressure on, on, on some of the uh, some of the victims, so-called victims. One of the victims, Annie Cannon, confessed and then it turned out that um, she hadn't been told that she didn't have to make a statement. Um, and it also turned out that Salisbury put pressure on her by pretending to phone a, a famous pathologist. Uh, um, and, and so she got off, she, she was let off. Um, so she had a, a pretty lucky escape. Some like Mary Sutcliffe, uh, the, the first victim, who, was, who also was attacked twice, just about the time when Salisbury came to Halifax, she had another slashing. Mm -hmm. uh, so she was the only victim to, to be attacked twice. She wasn't prosecuted. And it's hard to say, Salisbury did say something quite cryptic after the trials. And he, he said that, um, all of the, the slashings were fake, except for one. Mm. Could it have been Mary Sutcliffe? Possibly could he have been talking about the Barkisland girls that, that weren't really slashings? I really don't know, and, and it, it's just impossible to find out. Mm. It seems quite unlikely that they were all, like, made up, doesn't it? They ha it has to have sort of come from somewhere. It's quite odd. I mean, even these, like, mass hysteria cases, it all sort of comes from, like, one case or... Yeah, it could be. And it could be that the Barkisland girls might have been the, the, the trigger that, that started it. But generally, in Halifax and, and also around the country, virtually everyone confessed to having done it to themselves. It's very difficult to say if any of them were genuine or even if, you know, some nasty person had seen it in the newspapers and decided he'd do some kind of copycat slashing. During the early 20th century and the late 19th century, there was a, a fashion for sort of dressing as a ghost and then jumping out on people and scaring the bejesus out of them, hanging around graveyards and spooking people. That, that, that was a, a hobby that a lot of people followed. There's a famous one, not famous one, but there's a, a very well-known one in, that happened in Bradford in 1926 called the Bradford Ghost that led to a similar sort of thing to the Halifax Slasher, except he was this time it was supposedly someone who was dressing as a ghost and scaring people. It led to the same sort of situation of loads of mobs in the streets chasing each other around, trying to find who this mysterious ghost was. There was a lot of knife crime at the time as well, wasn't there, nationally? Uh, yeah, I think that the Halifax slasher scare 
played into a few fears that were going on. And one of them was the fear of knife crime. Um, there was, uh, we, we talked about the, the race gangs, the, the this horse racing gangs, um, whose weapon of choice was a razor blade. And they would frequently wear the kind of things, the flat cap or the trilby and, and, the, and the overcoat that, that we'd associate with that kind of Brighton rock style gangster chic. Um, it, you know, it's also been said that this coincided with, with tabloidification of the media, if that's a word. So you were starting to get pictures of cool looking gangsters in uh, in the newspapers. And I think that sort of played into, into that image. So you're right, the, the fear of knife crime uh, certainly played into that. Another thing that might have contributed to the slasher square was the awareness of the crime of dress cutting. Um, and that seemed to explode in, in the 20s. It was re- very widely reported in the national press where um, in a cinema or a dance hall or in shops, a, a man would go up behind a woman and, and sort of slice her dress. There was a famous case in, in Paris where um, it was a young art student who just, when he was finally caught, just said he could never see a beautiful dress without wanting to cut it. Um, and so there were reports of these dress slashers these were generally surreptitious. They'd go up behind someone and slash them. But there were reports of these in London and Manchester. And then finally, in 1926, Halifax got its own dressed slasher. Uh, his name was James Francis Leonard. And he was caught after he slashed the dress of several young women in, in uh, cinema or, or dance halls. And the thing that did for him was that he had a, a really big, prominent nose, which meant that they could all easily identify him. And, and so when the, the, the Halifax slasher scare happened, I, you would imagine that he would be top on their list of subjects. But the thing that did for him in 1926 probably saved him in 1938 because none of the victims mentioned a very prominent nose. And so that was probably what saved him from being falsely accused of, of the 38 attacks. Yeah, they had a list of other things. Didn't someone say he had a big mouth? the Halifax slasher? Oh, the, the Margaret Reynolds attack. Yeah. Um, that, that is, that's my favourite quote. I'll just read that out, actually. Um, she described it like this. He got hold of me with both hands near my shoulders, and I thought he was trying to kiss me. He grimaced in my face, and I noticed his flat nose and bad teeth. He seemed to brush both hands down my arms from the shoulders, and I felt a sharp pain and screamed. So that, that's where the, the slash is evolving into a kind of bogeyman. Um, I forgot to mention, of course, the, the elephant in the room, which was World War II, which was looming over everyone at the time. If you're just looking at the papers from November 1938, you can see World War II is on the horizon as the government's talking about how we're preparing for, for being bombed. Uh, so that, that kind of anxiety was also playing, playing into people's fears. Um, as to what, what the mechanism was that drove people to cut themselves. Um, I think that the, the thing with a razor slashing is it's probably relatively painless compared to you know, chopping a finger off or shooting yourself or something like that. If you're going to fake an attack, um, it's plausible because of that fear of knife crime. So I wonder if that might have, and, and razor blades were easily available. So I just wonder whether that might have been part of the driver. But as to why certain people did this, it's an uncomfortable 
truth that people do make these kinds of things up sometimes make them up sometimes maybe imagine them and that you know we haven't really talked about that distinction did they make them up did they imagine them you know did they scratch themselves accidentally on something and then assume they'd been attacked um maybe that happened in some of the cases but of course they, they often gave detailed descriptions of, of, of the attacker um, i suppose another driver might be once they reported the attack, they would have been love-bombed with sympathy and understanding from their family and friends and work colleagues. In a day with very limited media, they would, suddenly they'll find themselves, you know, with a photographer there taking their photo. Their their smiling faces, often incongruously smiling faces, were in the newspaper. Um, so maybe all that played a role in it as well. Yeah, some kind of notoriety. Mm. Yeah. Notoriety, and uh, I suppose th th there's a sort of the respect that you can get from that, that victimhood gives people. That, that it gives them a kind. I mean, if we look at some of the photos of Mary Sutcliffe, she seems, you know, very stoical. She looks very strong as she sort of bravely deals with this uh, horrible, motiveless attack. Mm. It's almost as if, in harming themselves, that they're gaining some kind of control out of a random situation. It could be. It could be that, you know, that they were undoubtedly pretty poor. Um, many of them were working in factories um, and, you know, conditions for, for the working class in Halifax in the 1930s, you know, wouldn't have been great. And maybe that was one way of trying to gain some control over their lives, certainly. Mm. There were a few little panics that were sort of, I think they were more inspired by the Jack the Ripper murders in London um, in 1888. Um, one of them um, is the Greetland man-woman. This happened in 1892. It was, it's a very small and sort of self-contained panic. Um, but the Greetland man-woman was supposedly a, was a little... Is he a man? Is he a woman? Is he, um, the newspaper speculated, is he a ghost? Is he a robber? Is he a Jack the Ripper? Um, but he's small, he's got a peak cap and a large round white face. But it meant that the, the young people of Greetland were so terrified that they wouldn't go out at night. And, and this was over very quickly. And unfortunately, the, the information's tantalizing, but that's all there is. Um, so the, the, there have been other panics that were similar in style to the slasher but they didn't really take off another example that that i found was the the phantom dog poisoner of 1899 um and this was at a time when um dog fancying or the fancy as it was known was taking off and um both in the middle class and working class and people were breeding these prize pedigree dogs uh, and, and then some of them started dying, apparently being poisoned. And um, a Halifax vet called Mr. Walker said that he believed that there was a maniac going around poisoning the local dogs, someone who really hated dogs so much that he was poisoning them. And this seemed plausible because, you know, the people were debating the dog question, as it was called, what to do with stray dogs who, who might be a danger to people. Um, but anyway, the, the, the poisoning spread more and more people were coming forward saying their dogs or sometimes their cats had been poisoned. And, it, you know, it was led to such an extent that the RSPCA got involved and 
put a great big placard in the middle of Halifax saying that they were going to prosecute the dog poisoner if ever they found him. But, you know, it, and, and this also sort of spread around the country to different areas. And it's never been really clear if someone was poisoning dogs or whether dogs were just eating carelessly discarded pesticides or whether there was a, a virus or some other thing that was doing it. Mm. But but yeah, the phantom dog poisoner of uh, 1899 seems to be a little forgotten panic of um, uh, from the 19th century. But I think my favourite one came from 1908. And this involved a 16-year-old girl's parents getting a letter written by Jack the Ripper of Manchester. And Jack the Ripper of Manchester wrote in his uh, four-page letter that he was going to come to Todmorden, where he had heard there were fine, plump girls, kidnap them, uh, have his wicked way, have their wicked way with them. And when they'd finished with the fine, plump girls of Todmorden, they were going to come and go after the children and their teachers. Um, and, and this led to a huge panic in Todmorden. Children weren't allowed out. Extra police were put on. Parents went to meet their children out of school and wouldn't let them walk home on their own. Um, the police suspected finally that it was it was a hoax due to the Todmorden postmark on the letter but yeah there were quite a number of sort of Jack the Ripper related scares that happened in the years after. It happens even relatively recently this kind of phenomenon doesn't it? You mentioned the sonic attacks in um, Cuba. One of the the things that that we're often told about hysteria is oh it only happens to women or it only happens to poorly educated women or it only happens to, to poor people but I think what the Cuba attacks show is that that's not the case uh, even to you know the, the best educated um, elites diplomats can, can can fall victim for it because yes you're right a few years ago um, when America opened its embassy in Cuba um, some of the American diplomats there started hearing this really loud invasive noise that seemed to be coming from inside their head and they started suffering all these symptoms like they couldn't concentrate they were getting migraines um they're having memory problems uh, and all kinds of things and and you know when they reported this um, doctors studied them they found changes in the white matter in their brain it was so what was concluded was that this was some kind of sonic weapon being used by the Cubans directed at American diplomats. Um, so it was the Cubans or maybe it was the Russians or maybe it was the Chinese. You can choose your favourite bogeyman. When recordings were made of these, uh, these sonic weapons, a lot of biologists immediately recognised them as crickets. The American government doesn't accept that explanation, but when you think of that these sonic attacks only affected American and Canadian diplomats, but Cubans who lived and worked in the same buildings were completely unaffected. Um, this seems to me a, a classic case of modern mass hysteria, except in this case, these were highly educated, uh, the highly educated elite. So they're just as, uh, as prone to these kinds of, uh, this kind of hysteria as, as anyone else. Yeah, of course, they would rationalize that it wasn't happening to the Cubans because this sonic noise could seek out Americans and Canadians. <laughs> Specifically, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> but, you know, and, and maybe for, for the American government, it's better just to deny that because it might be better for their overall narrative to, to say the dastardly Cubans or, or Russians or Chinese are, are up to this. 
yeah and and it's everybody always thinks oh it's never going to happen to us don't they um but there's an interesting quote from the yorkshire post from october 1938 mm. it it's in relation to what happened in the us over the broadcast of war of the worlds um do you want to just say a little bit about war of the worlds yes yeah, so um 1938 was when Orson Welles adapted H.G. Wells' novel, uh, War of the Worlds, turned it into a radio play. Um, And one of the things he did when he adapted it is he started it with a fake news announcement about uh, Martians attacking America and destroying everything and zapping people with death rays. And this led to a certain amount of panic in in America with um, people leaving their homes, um, people running into churches screaming, "The, the end is near. Uh, so there's all kinds of panic were, were, was generated. And there's a famous case of mass hysteria, I suppose, and there's been a, a tendency in the academic literature of mass hysteria to downplay that and say, oh, it was manufactured by the American newspapers at the time. But I'm sure the newspapers exaggerated, but I, I think they can't get away with it. It definitely happened, and there definitely was hysteria of Americans who believed Martians were attacking. Um, you know, there were lots of phone calls to to, uh, to the newspapers saying, I can see them, I can see them, they're here, it's hell. So it, it definitely happened. And of course, the Yorkshire Evening Post very sniffly said, of course, that might happen to those Americans, but we British are never going to fall for anything like that. And that was days before the, the Halifax slasher scare kicked off properly. Yeah, there's what was the quote? I've got the quote here. Have you got the quote? Um, okay, so this was the editorial on the 31st of October, Halloween, um, 1938, in the Yorkshire Evening Post. Uh, they said, in this tight island, we have a tradition of common sense and level-headedness, not to mention a saving sense of humour, which would make such an exhibition of nerves highly unlikely. And there we go. <laughs> How wrong they were, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've been listening to History Out Loud, a podcast by Calderdale Libraries. Produced and presented by Sarah Rose and Jill Carpenter. Join us next time when we will be discussing local naturalist, botanist, mycologist and illustrator, James Bolton.